Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. We begin the Advent season thinking through how our relationship with God is extremely bent. And there is only one way to take our crimson and make it white. You're listening to Making the Crooked Straight, A Savior Who Unbends Our Sin by Rev. Christy Mannion. Well, this Sunday morning marks the start of the Advent season for us and for Christians throughout the world. And here at LaGrave, we're opening to the book of Isaiah. Our Advent theme is Making the Crooked Straight. And it comes from the message of Isaiah chapter 40. And that same message was picked up centuries later by John the Baptist. The voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now Isaiah and John were both directing people to get ready for a royal visitor. So for the first hearers of Isaiah, that would mean getting out into the roadway with shovels and with rakes and getting out the rocks and smoothing out the ruts because you wanted to make sure that nothing would get in the way of the king who was on his way. So during Advent, we'll be looking at what needs straightening out in our hearts, in our world, and we'll prepare for the coming of the King. So we're beginning in Isaiah chapter 1, a message that Isaiah says comes to him straight from God, doesn't come out of his own head. It's about 750 years before the time of Jesus to the southern kingdom of Judah and the capital city, Jerusalem. So listen, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children. I brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey knows its owner's manger, but Israel doesn't know. My people don't understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great. A brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left, like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom we would have been like Gomorrah. 
So hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash. Make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now. Let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Although your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land, but if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is a hard word from the Lord today, and we're thankful for it. Leo Tolstoy wrote a novel called Anna Karenina, and it opens in the home of a 19th century Russian family in upheaval. For three days, the five children have had the run of the house. The servants have lacked direction, and the wife, Dolly, has been in her room, stealing her nerve and getting ready to pack up the kids to head to her mother's. Steva is the likable and carefree and handsome husband, well-liked by the servants, but he's broken his wife's trust. And he foolishly thinks that his wife has known about his choices and has just turned a blind eye. So when Dolly first confronts him, he's totally unable to recognize the wrong. So Tolstoy writes, There happened to Steva at that moment what happens to people when they are unexpectedly caught in something very disgraceful. Instead of being hurt or denying or defending begging forgiveness, instead of staying indifferent even, his face totally involuntarily assumed its habitual, good-humored, and therefore idiotic smile. The smile he could not forgive himself. Dolly sees the smile and she shudders and she unleashes a torrent of angry words and she runs out of the room refusing to see her husband for days. And Steva thinks to himself, it's that idiotic smile. That's what's to blame for all of this. 
If Steve really thinks that the real root of the problem is the smile, he has another problem on his hands. His relationship with his wife is a lot worse off than he wants to think. And the restoration of his marriage is going to take a little more than acknowledging bad timing of a grin. Like Steva, the people of Judah have a denial problem. Judah's relationship with the Holy One is a lot worse off than she wants to think that it is. And restoration of that relationship is going to take a lot more than she wants to hope that it will. Isaiah opens his message by calling defendant Judah into the courtroom of God. He steps up to the lectern and calls up his first witnesses, all of creation, the heavens and the earth. And he starts to prosecute God's case against his people. Hear heavens, listen earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and I brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its master and the donkey knows its owner's manger, but Israel doesn't know. My people don't understand. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured from the sole of your foot to the top of your head. There is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores. At least the oxen, God says, know where to go for their food. At least donkeys know enough not to bite the farmhand. But Judah has less sense than barnyard animals. The children of the Holy One have lost touch with their God. Not only is Judah unaware of God, her sin has spiraled out of control. And so like an anguished parent who sits at the door of a a child caught in a destructive cycle and knocks and knocks and knocks and says, why do you do this to yourself? Why do you keep hurting yourself? I can't take it anymore. That's what God says to Judah. And it's true, a big section of what we read there shows us that Judah can talk the religious talk. Technically, the people are carrying out all the aspects of God-directed worship to the nth degree. They're, They're doing all the festivals, all the sacrifices, all of the offerings. But God says he isn't having any of it because they've become meaningless. Because their hands are full of blood, he's going to stop his ears and cover his eyes and refuse to listen to their prayers. Because the deeper problem is that the relationship between God and his people is bent. and It's almost even broken past repair. And in that chapter we read, Isaiah levels a torrent of accusations so long and so wide-reaching that it almost makes your head spin. I was trying to figure out this week as I was studying, what exactly is God the most upset about? And one of the commentators said, there's just so much here. The whole point is that Judah is as bad off as she could possibly be. There is no way that they can sacrifice and festival their way out. 
In the most pointed commands of the passage, Isaiah calls Judah to come back from the brink. Wash. Make yourselves clean. Remove your evil deeds from before me. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. God's people must see the truth. Clean hands and pure hearts before God are essential. Loving their neighbor by acting justly is critical. Worship practices on their own won't cut it. And things are so bad that God, the judge, calls defendant Judah into his chambers. He says, come on in, because I've drafted up a settlement. Way to straighten this all out. Come now, let us settle the matter, God says in Isaiah 1.18. Although your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you'll eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be eaten by the sword. And so God offers his people a way forward. Give me a sign, God says. Give me a sign that your heart is turning back toward me. Show me that you choose me, that you choose life instead of death. Your sin-stained life will be as clean as new snow. When sin-stained Judah comes into worship as if she has nothing to repent for, nothing is amiss, God calls her worship a charade. Sometimes I find myself wanting to underplay the concrete reality of sin in my own heart. What about you? The Heidelberg Catechism tells us that God is terribly angry with the sin that we're born with, as well as the sin that we personally commit. That's scary. So as people who take sin seriously, something that deserves God's wrath, sometimes we want to pretend that it isn't really there. And sometimes in the Christian community, we've gotten really good at wallpapering over some of the character flaws and the cracks in the foundations of our own hearts. We've gotten so good at it that sometimes we forget that it's even under there anymore. We're content to admit, generally, that we're sinners, that we need a Savior. That's why we're here. But if you press us to see the effects of a particular flaw, if you push on us to own a damaging behavioral pattern that's hurting the people around us, like Adam and Eve, we might just run for cover, shift blame, deny, deny, deny. Others of us face the opposite danger. We respect God's righteous indignation so much that it almost crushes us. We see the effects of our bad decisions. We see how stuck we are in ingrained patterns. We think we're beyond repair, that we're beyond hope, beyond the reach of grace. 
We don't even dare lift up our heads to look for the grace that Jesus offers to us. Can you hear in Isaiah 1 not only the blasts of righteous anger, but also the minor tones of grief? God's angry. Sin offends his holiness. But he's grieved because sin unravels the fabric of a relationship that he wants so badly to make whole. So how does God do that? How does he make that crimson stain white and clean? Our companion passage for this morning is from Isaiah 53, well-known words. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Do you hear the surprise in Isaiah's words? Surely he was pierced for our transgressions? By his wounds, we are healed? The Lord has laid on him our wickedness? Surely not. That doesn't make any sense. Israel's legal code given by God at Mount Sinai said that where financial redress for, for an injury was not possible, the punishment for a crime was dealt with by the person who did the injuring. Eye for eye, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. So to think of someone else bearing the justly deserved penalty was surprising when it was on someone else's behalf. Those who first heard Isaiah's message probably could not have imagined that centuries later there would be a fully human, fully divine substitute sufferer who would take their pain, their punishment. It's unlikely that they had a well-developed theology of Jesus' atonement 700 years before he came. But their hearts were getting ready they probably had lots of questions about who would fit such a description that such a servant could and would straighten out other people's sin. It was surprising. As Christians today, we have the benefit of hindsight and the challenge of hearing the surprise of those words. If you're a Baroque music fan, you probably immediately hear Isaiah 53 through the tones of Handel's Messiah. Or maybe as a person who reads the New Testament, you hear these words through the book of 1 Peter, where Peter's talking about Jesus. He himself bore our sins, Peter writes, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. Jesus' wounds, Jesus' bruises, Jesus' pierced hands and side, Jesus' alienation. 
endured to re-thread that fabric of relationship with his people. Jesus' suffering shows us how seriously God takes sin and how deeply he loves us. When we begin to see the depths of the cracks, we begin to see the depths of God's love. When we begin to see the consequence in the face of Christ for our sin, we begin to see how serious a thing it is. And we can't straighten it out ourselves. But we don't have to. So here is a freeing truth paraphrased from other pastors. We are both more sinful than we know and more deeply loved than we can imagine. Before I came to LaGrave, I was serving very part-time as a workplace chaplain. And one of the joys of that work was getting to walk alongside people in all different places in their life and being able to try gently to point them to Jesus in different ways. One of the most beautiful things about that ministry was the honesty that people would show when they talked about their lives. There was a husband-to-be who recognized that his wife was just exceedingly gracious to him, or his, his fiancée, not wife yet. He was a little rough around the edges, but he certainly saw a few aspects of his personality and behavior that could make being around him difficult. He could name out loud to a few other people some of his shortcomings. And when we start to name a few of our shortcomings out loud to other people, ah, we make space for God to begin to deal with our sin. Surely Jesus comes alongside. Surely Jesus bends down and looks us in the eyes and straightens up heads bowed down and straightens stooped shoulders because he's taking our sins upon himself. As, the strangest, as he does that, the strangest thing happens because the burdens that we carry shift to him. We begin to straighten up as he begins to bend down. He says to us, that destructive cycle that you can't get free of, yep, I see it. It's deadly. We got to deal with that. That'll kill you. But I'm willing. I'm willing to take the consequences for that so that you can have life with me. What if, brothers and sisters, what if in the family of Jesus there was no need to pretend that we have it all together? What if there was no need to pretend about our brokenness? What if each one of us had a small handful of trustworthy people to whom we could say, I'm broken. I have failures. As far as God's given me to see them, here's a few of them. But I know that Jesus loves me. 
And I know that you love me too. And I know that walking together, we can find a new way of life together. I know some of us in this church have that very thing, and I'm so grateful. And I long for that for all of us. What if church was a place where we could come and say, my name is Christy, I'm a sinner, I need a savior, help me make the paths straight for him in my life. In a couple weeks, we're going to stand on tiptoe at the manger and we're going to see a newborn king. But don't let his smallness fool you because he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not just for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are more loved than we know, more deeply sinful than we can see, and we are fully trusting in your grace that sets us free. Help us to cooperate with you as we prepare for your coming. Thank you for being the one who so graciously makes the way to our hearts plain for your coming. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.